We mentioned last week here in Matthew chapter 12, the, the friction between the Pharisees and Jesus is continuing to grow and grow and grow. And it's going to boil over sooner rather than later within the Gospels. We saw friction. It almost seems as if Jesus chooses to heal people on the Sabbath on purpose. Almost to irk the Pharisees a bit or to be able to see what's going on in their hearts and minds. And we see a little bit more of that here this morning, we'll get a great encouragement and invitation from Jesus to each and every one of us here this morning. Just a great section of scripture. But let's read verse 38 through 42, this first section this morning. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. We begin this section by seeing the scribes and the Pharisees asking Jesus and telling him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus responds in a very matter of fact, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And maybe you weren't here with us last week and you may think, Jesus, what's your problem? They're just asking for a sign. They're just asking to see who you are. But if you remember, or perhaps you weren't here, in this very chapter, Jesus has shown several signs and miracles and his power and might. In verse 9, he healed a man who had a withered hand. In verse 12, he healed a man who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And who did they ascribe the power behind these miracles to? To Satan. They've seen signs. They've seen miracles. And yet they made excuses for all of it, saying, Jesus, you're not healing on behalf of God. In fact, you're healing on behalf of Satan. In the last chapter in Matthew 11, verse 4 through 6, look at Jesus' street reputation here. Jesus says to the disciples of John the Baptist, he says, go and tell John the things which you hear and the things which you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. These Pharisees are asking for signs, but Jesus' very reputation in this moment is that he's able to heal absolutely everyone and anyone if he desires. But this wasn't enough for these Pharisees, for these scribes. The Gospel of Luke reveals to us their true heart in Luke 11, verse 16. It tells us others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. That word testing is translated several times to tempting him. They wanted to test him. They wanted to tempt him and say, hey, show us another sign. And it, perhaps they'd make another excuse why you can't be the son of God. 
Sometimes we think, God, if you would only do this miracle, then I'll believe in you. You play the Powerball and you say, Lord, if we win it this time, I'll believe in you and I'll even donate 10% to the church. I'll even do that for you. At times, maybe it's a loved one we love and we care for. God, if you only do this miracle, if you'd only heal their marriage, if you'd only heal their son or daughter, then they'll come and they'll believe you. But the Bible shows us that this is a wrong mindset. In Psalm 78, we have the history of Israel when they're in the wilderness. And if there was a generation that ever saw miracles, it was the generation of Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness. In Psalm 78, verse 12, it tells us marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he also led them with the pillar of cloud and in the night with a pillar of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and he gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Did this cause greater faith or greater reliance, greater trust in God? No. Verse 17 tells us, but they sinned even more. They sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. At the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel's camped out there and God is speaking in an audible voice to the entire nation of Israel. The earth is shaking, the mountain is quaking, there's fire there. And the Israelites say, Moses, you go up for us. We're too afraid to hear this voice any longer. Moses, he goes up the mountain. He's up there 40 days and nights. Talking with God, this is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And then God has to pause his conversation with Moses because what is the nation of Israel doing down at the bottom of the mountain? They're worshiping a golden calf. They've created their own little God and they're saying, we're going to worship this God. Even though 40 days earlier, they were too afraid of the audible voice of the Lord. We think seeing is believing, but scripturally, it's the very opposite. The more we believe, the more we have faith in God, the more our spiritual senses will be heightened and we're going to be able to see more into the spiritual things and the truth of God's word. Romans chapter 10, 17 tells us, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is why it's so important to have a daily habit of reading scripture. Because the only way our faith grows is by hearing and hearing the word of God. Hebrews 11 verse 1 gives us the biblical definition for faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith itself is built on a hope for things that you don't have and an evidence of things you have not seen. So seeing is in fact not believing. Verse 6, Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now husbands, how many of you want to please your wives? How many of you men here? There's only a couple, handful of wise guys, right? <laughs> honey, you see me? I want to please you, honey. There's only a couple of wise guys here. They, raise, they put their hands up right away. It's been said, a happy wife 
happy life. How much more should we desire to please the creator of heaven and earth? How much more should we want to and desire to please the savior of our soul? The one who died for us, the one who sacrificed his life for us. But scripturally, it tells us without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without faith, you cannot please him. And we must believe that he is, that he exists. The God of the Bible is the true God and only God of the universe. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the four biblical ways that we grow our faith is by number one, hearing the word of God. Hearing the word of God. That's the number one way we grow our faith. Number two is believing that God exists. This God of the Bible is the one true God and I believe he exists. Number three, believing that God rewards those who diligently seek him. I believe if I diligently seek him, he's going to reward me. And number four, probably the most important out of the bunch besides hearing the word of God, actually did, did, diligently seeking him. You see, there are many of us, yeah, I believe God rewards those that seek him, but that's for that person. That's for my wife. That's for my kids. That's, that's not so much for me. No, we need to actually be diligent in seeking God. We need to carve out time. We need to stop the noise and set aside time to say, Lord, I want to hear from you this morning. On our lunch break at work, we retreat and we go hide in the car so we can read our Bible in stillness. On the college campus, during your break, you go and you find a quiet spot in campus because you believe if you seek God, he's going to reward you and he's going to bless you. This is how we grow our faith. We jump back to verse 39 in Matthew 12. These Pharisees are tempting Jesus, saying, show us a sign, do some tricks for us in the sky. And he answers them and says, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Once again, these scribes and Pharisees were well versed in Scripture. And they knew that Jesus had fulfilled all prophecy relating to the coming Messiah. Jesus was right in front of them. God incarnate was right in front of them. And yet they mock him by asking for more signs. The problem was that their heart was far from God. They thought they loved God. They thought they were close to God. But the way we treat the person of Jesus Christ is the way we actually treat God. Your love or your hatred, your respect or lack of respect for Jesus Christ is going to reveal your love or your respect for the creator of heaven and earth. These men, although they were religious, although they knew the word of God, they were adulterous. They loved and served other idols instead of the Lord their God. And another part of the Gospels, it says that they loved to have preeminence over the people. They loved their fancy robes and the fancy meetings and being in high places of position. They did not truly love the Lord their God or his people. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, it reveals to us the heart of God. He says, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. 
I will take you one from the city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. God's heart for these Pharisees, God's heart for you maybe this morning is that you would return back to him. Perhaps you've been backsliding, perhaps you've been adulterous in your relationship with the Lord God and he says, hey, come back to me. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Israel had left their first love. And perhaps that's you here this morning. You have left your first love. God's heart is not to just throw a bunch of condemnation on you. God's heart is not to throw lightning bolts at you. God's heart is that you would return back to him. And seeing that these Pharisees' hearts were far from the Lord God, and seeing that these, the heart of these Pharisees was hard towards Jesus, Jesus wasn't going to do any party tricks for them. He wasn't going to entertain them with any magic tricks for these religious leaders. But he tells them, you know what, I'll give you one sign that you can know I am who I am. He says, I am going to be like Jonah. Here Jesus is being prophetic and he would fulfill his own prophecy in being, in being considered dead for three days, being dead for three days and three nights, and then resurrecting. A few things we see here is number one, Jesus believed in Jonah. Sometimes we read scripture and we say, ah, a worldwide flood, that's far-fetched. I'll cut that out of scripture and believe the rest. Jonah, a guy getting eaten by a fish, that's not real. I always see it in cartoons, in kids' ministry. No way that's real. That's not truthful, and we'd write it out. No, Jesus believed in, Ju in Jonah. He's not making excuses for it. He's not trying to reason to get us to believe it. He believed, and he says, and he knows that Jonah existed. And Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish was a picture of Jesus being dead for three days, but then rising and being victorious. David Guzik, he points out a, a few more similarities to Jesus and Jonah. The first of which is Jonah was thrown for dead in order to please God's wrath. If you remember, Jonah's on the boat and there's a great storm. All these sailors, they're freaking out. And Jonah says, hey, if you throw me overboard, the wrath of God won't be poured out on you. And Jesus, he did the same for us. He died and he took God's wrath that I deserve and you deserve and he took all of it for us. Jonah preached a gospel for 40 days and 40 nights to save the people of Nineveh. Jesus came to preach the gospel and the kingdom of heaven so that we could be saved. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Jesus was three nights and three days in the grave, but then he resurrected and is victorious. Verse 41 and 42 in Matthew 12, it says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, was Jonah really that great of a prophet? When, when people, right, in Christian circles, hey, who's your favorite Bible character? I've never heard someone say, Jonah's my favorite Bible character. Jonah's a pretty terrible prophet, if we're being honest. Did he even love the people that God called him to speak to? No, he hated them. 
He hated the Assyrians. He hated the people of Nineveh. At best, Jonah was reluctant. But biblically, Jonah, we should call him the disobedient prophet because he specifically disobeyed God's orders and foolishly tried to outrun God in the opposite direction, only to find himself in the middle of a storm, to only then be thrown into the middle of the ocean, and then be swallowed by a huge fish or sea creature. Then, after two days in the belly, he then prays and asks for forgiveness. Could you imagine waiting two days to then pray and ask for help? Three days later, he's vomited out. And if you ever want a teaching on the grace of God, it's that Jonah was vomited out of the fish. Because there were other options there. But God showed his grace and he vomited him out. Jonah finally arrives after being in 100% humidity for three days and after being in stomach acid for three days. He finally arrives and his great and grand sermon and message tells us in Jonah chapter 3. You can turn there. What a strange book, but what a great book. If you have to use your table of contents, don't worry. No sweat. Nobody's going to judge you. Jonah chapter 3. Verse 4, look at this incredible sermon from Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, it tells us, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the whole sermon. Eight words. Talk about short, sweet, and to the point. This eight-word message given every day for 40 days from a reluctant, disobedient, skin-bleached white, fish-smelling prophet. And what was the response of the people of Nineveh in verse 5? All they heard was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no good news there. He's just giving the bad news. 40 days and you're toast. 40 days and Miami's destroyed. 40 days and Miami's destroyed. And what's the heart of the people of Nineveh? Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. Proclaimed the fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let a man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. This eight-word sermon Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And look at the response of the city of Nineveh. Not just from the poor, not just from the rich, but even the politicians. The president himself is weeping and asking God for forgiveness. This massive revival to the point where even the animals were forced to fast. Some of you guys, you love your animals. You got your little costumes for your dogs. You got little 
sweaters for them when it gets cold in Miami. Imagine sewing out a sackcloth costume for your dog. Because you want to show the Lord you are so broken at your sin, you're going to even force your animals to fast and weep before the Lord God. This is how great the revival was throughout Nineveh. And what was Prophet Jonah's response to this incredible revival? Chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Once again, Jonah, he's not that great of a prophet. I don't know too many ministries that call themselves the Jonah ministry. And yet look at the revival in Nineveh. That's why Jesus, he looks at the Pharisees. He looks at the nation of Israel and he says, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at, at Jonah's eight word message. And yet there's a greater one than Jonah here. And you are hardening your hearts instead of repenting. Perhaps as you here this morning. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the good news. You know the truth of who Jesus is. And you're just hardening your heart more and more and more against him. You know you need to forgive someone. You know you need to love someone. You know you need to cut off that sin. And instead of being obedient, you're just hardening your heart more and more against him. In verse 42, Jesus speaks of the queen of the south. This is the queen of Sheba who rode 1,200 miles to go and hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she was blown away at Solomon's wisdom. Yet Solomon's life really isn't that great. You read the book of Ecclesiastes and the guy just seems like he's depressed. What's wrong with him? And that's why Jesus says here, she's going to rise up and condemn this generation because she marveled at the wisdom of Solomon. She went 1,200 miles to hear Solomon. I've come from heaven to speak to you. I've come to your very doorstep, and yet you harden your heart against me. And there's one far greater than Solomon here. Friend, are you asking for a sign and Jesus has shown you many signs already. William Barclay says, you're asking for a sign. I am God's sign. You failed to recognize me. The Ninevites recognized God's warning in Jonah. The Queen of Sheba recognized God's wisdom in Solomon. And yet you harden your heart against Jesus Christ. Friend, have you been asking for another sign in order to force yourself to follow Jesus? Are you sort of in this business deal with him? Hey, if you show me one more sign, you scratch my back, I'll finally scratch yours. I encourage you, don't wait. He's revealing himself to you and there's no greater sign than Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater he can do for you than what he's already done. Humbling himself, coming to this earth, and while we were all yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of his kingdom, he died for us. Verse 43, this next section back in Matthew 12. 
Jesus, he's going to speak to two points. Number one, he's going to reveal to us a little bit more of the spiritual battles and what demonic oppression actually looks like, how to guard ourselves from it. And he's also going to once again warn this wicked generation. Verse 43 through 45, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Wouldn't that be nice? You leave your house, you come back, it's all clean. Verse 45. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first so shall it be also with this wicked generation. Our heart, is it under new ownership or have you simply cleaned it up and remodeled it a little bit? This section goes back to what Jesus said earlier in verse 28 and 29. In his back and forth with the Pharisees, he tells them, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? We saw last week that the heart and the desire of Jesus Christ is to go in, bind the devil, and then free those of us who want to be freed. He wants to plunder the enemy's home and he'll bind him. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Jesus is far greater and far stronger than the strong man who is Satan. However, there are many that just want Jesus to fix their current problems. Maybe that's why you came to church here this morning. You had some friction in your marriage. You had a health crisis. You have a, your children are in a health crisis. Maybe you're at a fork in a road, so you come to church for God to fix your problems. Perhaps we even use the Bible for some pointers on wisdom or morality and self-discipline. We can get those demons out of our life for a season. We may even clean ourselves up a bit, set a higher standard, create better morals, instill more self-discipline, but you still will not be saved. You still won't be protected from the demonic activity coming back. You will simply have cleaned up that house, remodeled it a little bit, and now when the demon comes back finding it cleaner than ever before, he invites seven more friends and has a house party in your soul and in your body. And then what he says is, the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Are you coming to Jesus for him to transform and change your life? Or are you coming to Jesus to just fix a couple things on the outside? Sometimes we come to him so he could be the cherry on top. Lord, I'm pretty perfect, but I just need you to fix one more thing, and then I'll be saved and we'll be golden. Oftentimes we want Jesus to fix us from the outside in. Lord, work on this bad habit, work on this thing, work on that thing. No. Scripturally, Jesus, the only way he works is from the inside out. We have to give him our heart, our soul, our everything. And then he changes us from the inside out. Charles Spurgeon, he says, The devil has no objection to his house being swept and garnished. For a moralist may be as truly his slave 
as the man uh, debauched habits. So long as the heart is not occupied by his great foe, which is Jesus Christ, he can still use the man for his own purposes. The adversary of souls will let him reform as much as he pleases. Are you coming to Christ just so he can reform you and change your bad habits? Or are you coming to Jesus saying, Lord, you're my Lord, you're my master, you can have it all? And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Then Jesus says, so it shall be with this wicked generation. Jesus is also pointing to the scribes and Pharisees that their desire for a Messiah was a Messiah that would keep them in their religious power, a Messiah who would free them from the oppression of their government, a Messiah that would make life easier for them, a Messiah that would make life more comfortable for them. They wanted a Messiah who would obey their orders and their desires, a Messiah who could come, clean things up a bit, make everything look nicer, give me the perfect life with a white picket fence and the car that I want, but not a Messiah who demands to be Lord of our lives. Does this not sound a little bit familiar? Sometimes we take the American dream and we say, Jesus, you're, you're the author and finisher of our American dream. Jesus, I just want you to fix the government. Not so that there would be millions of people saved, but just so that my 401k could go up a bit. Jesus, I want you to save the government, not so that people could be saved and revival would break out. I want you to save the government so, Lord, oof, things are crazy out there. Look at what's happening. We have to be careful. There are many people that believe just because they vote Republican or just because they're conservative, they are saved. It's not the truth. And if that's you here and your mind is being blown, hey, that's why the Lord brought you here this morning. We need to have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He's not here to just fix America. He's here to save all of humanity. We could turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. This is what our Messiah demands. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Sadly, there are those who live their lives trying to save it. Let me just clean up my morals. Let me just clean up my standards. Let me just create more self-discipline. But there is a reluctance to surrendering our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Scripture is plain. You will end up losing your life. And Scripture is plain. It tells us the state of that man, the last state of that man, will be worse than the first. Jesus, he wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your friend. He wants to save your life, your marriage, your home. He wants to save it all. But there has to be complete surrender to him. This last section in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50, this is one of my favorite themes throughout Scripture. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, it tells us, While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, 
your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Mark's account gives us a little bit more insight. Mary and Jesus' brothers weren't coming to Jesus because they were in need or they were having problems at home. In fact, Mark chapter 3, verse 21 tells us, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. You see, Mary and Jesus' brothers went to go grab Jesus because they believed he had lost his mind. There goes big bro again, talking about scripture. There goes big Jesus. Again, he's off his rocker. He's fighting with the Pharisees. What's wrong with that guy? They went to go and correct Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it tells us, For even his brothers did not believe in him. And somehow or some way, these brothers got Mary into believing the same type of idea that they had. Not believing in him, although Mary knew exactly knew exactly who Jesus was and is. Charles Spurgeon says the members of his family had come to take him because they thought he was besides himself. No doubt the Pharisees had so represented his ministry to his relatives that they thought they had better restrain him. The the fake news going out there, the bad publicity, the Pharisees telling Mary, Mary, you got to do something. I don't know what's wrong with him. He's causing all these problems. You got to do something here. And there's a few aspects of biblical truths that come to the surface in this section. Who is my mother? And these things, they're biblical, but within the Catholic Church, this is not what's taught. Mary does not have special access to Jesus Christ. She didn't have special access to Jesus Christ when he was walking on earth, nor does she have special access to him now that he is in heaven. Jesus says, who is my mother? And maybe all the moms are here and they look at their kids. If you ever talk to me like that, I'll smack you, right? I'll give, I'll give you a good one. And the belief within the Catholic Church is every good son has to obey his mother. So I'm going to pray to Mary. Mary's going to be up in heaven. She's going to grab Jesus' ear and say, hey, you got to do what Zach's praying for. You got to do what he's asking for because he's praying to me. But 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 5 and 6 warns us. It says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's not me. It's not any other pastor. It's not any other church leader. It is not Mary. There's only one mediator between us and God, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. We can come to him at any time. The Bible tells us to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. There's only one name given by where men can be saved, Jesus Christ. It's all in him and through him. Mary was an incredible woman. For God to entrust such a young girl with such great responsibility, there's no doubt she was an incredible woman. 
But I believe the Catholic Church, and maybe some of us, we try to put Mary on a pedestal she shouldn't be on. Because we know scripturally the disciples, were they perfect? They did a lot of dumb things. A lot of things we laugh at. Yet God, he loves them. He gave them 12 thrones in, in heaven. And he still uses them mightily. He speaks of them only in a good light and a good way. It's interesting because Jesus' two interactions in the Gospels with Mary once he begins his ministry are probably not the best brother, uh, best son and mother relationship situations. The, the two times, the, the wedding at Cana and now this time, Jesus' response to his mother is probably not the response most moms want here. And if the disciples were flawed and imperfect men, Mary, although she was important and a special woman, she's flawed too. She needed Jesus as her Savior just as much as I do, just as much as you do, just as much as the disciples did as well. Then Jesus says, who are my brothers? The word brothers here is actual brothers. Mary and Joseph, as a married couple that were blessed with being able to procreate, were able to procreate and have more children. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. And no, all of these other sons, all of these other daughters were not immaculate conceptions as well. Throughout much of the Gospels and the New Testament, Scripture shows us that Jesus had siblings. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just tough for them. Imagine hearing that. Why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> your brother's perfect. Why can't you? I know he's perfect. I know he's never done anything wrong, right? But Mary and Joseph, they did. They had more children. Should we get mad at the Catholic Church? Do we call every Catholic, hey, you know what I learned at church today? No, love them, be kind to them, be gracious. But whenever scripture comes up, reveal to them scripture in a loving and kind way. Verse 49 and 50, he stretched out his hand towards his disciples. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What a moment this must have been for the disciples. They, again, they did a lot of silly things quite often. A lot of times, with, how could we do this again? How did we fail once again? But yet Jesus, he points to them. And he says, behold, my mother, my sisters, my brothers. It's all about doing the will of the Father in heaven. Are you, can you say, I am about my Father's business? I'm doing the will of the Father in heaven. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, this frightening scripture, but the same truth. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus looks to them. He stretches out his hand and he says, these are those that are doing the will of my Father in heaven. This is my family. These are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. Now, Jesus is not saying that family is not important. He's not saying that whatsoever. What Jesus is boldly saying and boldly declaring is that spiritual oneness is more important than familial oneness. Our oneness with Jesus Christ and those who do his will is more important than oneness with those who bear our same last name or bear our same blood or bear our same DNA. We need to hold to this because this is repeated throughout the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 8, we could turn there two sections in Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. It tells us then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this man wasn't in a funeral procession. This man said, hey, let me serve my dad and be with my dad until he passes away, and then I'll come and follow you. But verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Family, our love and obedience to Jesus Christ must be greater than our love and our obedience to anyone else. Including family, spouse, kids, or parent. It's all about his will. It's not about my will. It's not about the will of my spouse. It's not about the will of my kids or the will of my parents. It's all about God's will and God's desires in my life. And now let's be honest. We're blessed to be in a nation where more often than not, when we are doing his will, when we are one with him and a part of his family, we're going to be a greater spouse. We're going to be a better child. We're going to be a better parent. We're going to be a better son or a better daughter. But there are times when we need to face the fact that we need to pick peace in one home. We either pick peace in our home with our family here on earth or we pick peace with our father in heaven. And sadly, there are many believers that sacrifice that peace and that oneness with God just so that they could have peace and oneness with family here on earth. I encourage you, let's pick the Lord. Let's pick him above all. We wouldn't have the families we have if it were not for him. When we do his will, we get united to him. We become a part of the family of Jesus Christ. And Jesus will never be in debt to us, much less when we do things out of obedience to him. In Luke 18, verse 29, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or parents, or brothers, or wife, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. If you're faced with that decision, man, if I stand up for the Lord, I'm going to lose my brother. If I stand up for the Lord, I'm going to lose, I can't go over for Christmas. If I stand up and if I'm biblical, this relationship with someone I love so dearly is not going to make it, choose the Lord. Because he promises us that we will gain more family members in this life and in the one to come. And, And look around here this morning, this afternoon. Take a minute. Don't look at me. Look around. 
You have a family in Christ here. But there are many believers that refuse to lower their guard and invest time in the relationships here at church. And the only one you're robbing is yourself and your family in Christ. Because he wants to use this family to pour into you. He wants you to pour into this family. You who miss a dad or a mom, he wants to give you a mom or a dad here. You who miss a son or a daughter, he wants to bless you with a son or a daughter here. You who miss a family member, he wants to bless you with parents and brothers and wife and children in this present time. Our God will be a debtor to no one. Verse 49 and 50, he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And oh, the love of Jesus Christ here and the invitation each and every one of us are given here this afternoon. Jesus is willing to identify with us. Jesus was willing to identify with his disciples even though they were far from perfect. Even though they made many mistakes. Even though they put their foot in their mouth all the time. Even though they did dumb things. He was willing to identify with them. And if we are saved here this morning, we are identified with Jesus Christ. And we are one with him. Sometimes we're ashamed to call him our father in heaven. Sometimes we're ashamed to be linked up with Jesus Christ. But you know he's never ashamed to be linked up with us. Maybe you grew up and all of your brothers and sisters loved you perfectly. But I know there's some of you here. Maybe in high school they were a senior and you were a ninth grader. And, hey bro. And they said whoop. Right. And they walked away. <laughs> they didn't want to be identified with you at that moment. Because you would lower their reputation. Maybe you're at the grocery store and you see someone from church and you get all excited. Hey, so-and-so. And they sort of hide. They duck and cover and they do a roll and they hide on the other side of the grocery store. <laughs> there are times when we're ashamed to be connected with Jesus Christ. There are times when we're ashamed to be connected with our Father in heaven. And how does that make any sense? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies... And those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. If you're saved Jesus is not ashamed to say hey that's my family. Now yeah, even that crazy guy that, that guy's my family. He's a part of my family. And then in Hebrews 11, verse 16, it says, But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God, he's not ashamed to be called our God, the God of Zach, the God of George, the God of Jose, the God of each and every one of us here. He's willing to identify with us. I mean, imagine the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Were these amazing men? They're all terrible guys. All of them were terrible men. And yet he's willing to identify with them. In Matthew 28, verse 10, the disciples, this is after Jesus was in his greatest time of stress and need, and all the disciples fell asleep on him. 
This is after Jesus is on the cross and all of the disciples deserted him except for John. John's the only one there when Jesus is being crucified on the cross. This is after Peter denied Jesus three times. In Matthew 28, verse 10, after Jesus has resurrected, he says to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. He says, hey, go and tell my family. Go and tell my brothers. Hey, let's go to Galilee and we'll link up there. And when Jesus meets them on Galilee, does he have a huge pat on his hand? Is he sitting there with a list? Is he sitting there just shaking his head? No. He's sitting there waiting with breakfast for them. Even if we've failed, even if we've been faithless, he's still willing to identify with us. He still says, hey, your family, come on. Let's get back into this relationship. Let's keep going forward. And this is this incredible discipleship that we get to have with Jesus Christ. It's not just an invitation to be his slave. It's not just an invitation to be his servant. It's not just an invitation to be his friend. He invites every single one of us here this morning to be his little brother or his little sister. Every single one of us. If you've ever desired to have a, good, a big brother or a big sister, or maybe you had a good brother or a good sister, Jesus desires to be your perfect big brother. Now, Jesus isn't trying to prohibit his own family members from being close to him. Instead, he's inviting them, hey, if you would only do the will of the Father in heaven, you would be able to be as close to me as possible. And Jesus, even though he has this difficult situation with his mom, we know how much he cared for his mom. In fact, with his dying breaths, in John 19, 26, it tells us, while Jesus is crucified on the cross, he sees Mary, his mother, he sees John, the disciple, and he says, woman, behold your son. And he says to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, John takes Mary into his own home. And Jesus wants to have this close of a relationship with you and I. As close as he was to his own mom caring for her and taking care of her with his dying breaths, Jesus wants to take care of us. Just as special as Mary, his mother, was to him, so Jesus wants us to be to him. If we pick up our cross and follow him, we get to enjoy this special bond with Jesus Christ. Him not only being our Lord, him not only being our Savior, but him being our perfect big Brother, in Proverbs 18, verse 24, it tells us, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And especially for those of you that maybe you're lonely in this season, maybe you're the black sheep of the family, maybe your standing up for Jesus Christ has cost you that family relationship, Maybe you just had the best Thanksgiving ever. For some of you here, I'm sure you didn't have that great of a Thanksgiving. Or you're not looking forward to Christmas. Know that Jesus, he's willing to identify with you. He's willing to be your family. John R. Macduff, he says this much better than I can. He says, believer, are thou solitary and desolate? Has bereavement severed earthly ties? Has the grave made forced estrangements? Sundered the closest links of earthly affection? 
In Jesus Christ, thou hast phileo and fraternal love combined. He is the friend of friends whose presence and fellowship compensates for all losses. He supplies all banks and setteth the solitary into families. If thou art orphaned, friendless, comfortless here, remember there is in the elder brother on the throne a deep love as the unfathomed ocean and as boundless as eternity. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're the last one within your family. Maybe you're getting older and you just realized, I'm an orphan. All my parents have passed away. Maybe you're the last of your brothers and sisters. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've lost your family in its entirety. Know that Jesus desires to be that loved one and even more in your life. In John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's Jesus' desire with all of mankind. That's his desire for you here this afternoon, is that we would love him, and that we would keep his word. And then he is more than willing to come to us and make his home with sinners, with cockroaches, with worms like us. Hey, worship team, if you can come up. So family, I don't know who you are this morning. Perhaps you're that scribe or that Pharisee asking for another sign, kicking the can down the road. Instead of submitting your life to Jesus Christ, you're sort of battling with him to prove his worth to you, why he should be Lord over you. Perhaps you're that adulterous generation that you've walked away from Jesus Christ. You know who he is. You used to serve him more. You used to love him more. You used to seek him more. But now you're being adulterous. You're serving and sleeping around with different gods and different idols. We've received a far greater prophet than Jonah. We've received Jesus Christ, the perfect prophet, the perfect Messiah with the perfect message and his perfect love. Are we willing to accept it here? Are we simply just being the best version of ourselves, cleaning up our homes, fixing the morals a bit, cleaning things on, out on the outside, and yet there's no turning over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Or perhaps you're that one here this morning doing the will of your Father in heaven, and you're a little bit tired, you're a little bit lonely, you're a little bit scared. Be reminded He identifies with you. He wants to. He desires. He is that perfect big brother. So hey, let's all stand and we'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there's pastors up front. And I'll encourage you and invite you like the first service, whether it's a prayer for salvation, if you never prayed that prayer before, or perhaps during this holiday season, you've just found yourself lonely. I encourage you, come up front. Pastors would love to pray with you. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your love, and your mercy towards us, God. And Lord, we do. We pray for our family, Lord. We pray for those who are hurting, those who are in need, God. We pray that you would encourage them here today, Lord. Help us to stir one another up to love and good works, Lord. Help us to be the hands of Christ, Lord, that if there's someone here and we know them, Lord, and we see them hurting, that we just say, hey, can I pray for you? Hey, can I pray for you? Lord, may we be your hands and your feet. And Lord, if any of us here, Lord, we've been hardening our hearts, Lord, 
whether we're prodigals right now and we're saying where it's not really as bad as it sounds. I'm not really as bad as people may think. Lord, you know all things. Help us, Lord. Help us to repent like the people of Nineveh, Lord. Help us to repent and say, Lord, would you please be gracious and merciful to me? So, Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.